Please be seated. Turn with me, please, to Matthew 18. Matthew chapter 18. Okay. Matthew chapter 18. We'll be reading verses 15 through 20. It's found on page 1,329 if you are using a pew Bible, 1,329, page 1,329, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. In your pew Bible, you'll see that the words are marked in red because these are directly the words of Jesus, but we know that all the Bible consists of the words of Jesus and the word of the Lord. So Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Hear now God's word. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Surely I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. and Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. A beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is going to be the first of a three-part series on church discipline. So this week and next week, Lord willing, will be two parts of it, and then at some point in the future, I intend to preach the third part of it. What we see here in Matthew 18, 15 through 20, is that Jesus instructs his disciples regarding the purpose, procedure, and power of church discipline. Jesus instructs his disciples regarding the purpose, procedure, and power of church discipline. Now, as I begin today, young people, children, older people, I want you to think about a bowl of apples, a bowl of apples. This is a beautiful bowl of apples. It's a gorgeous bowl. It's wonderful. It's got gilt, golden around the the outside of it with wonderful, delicious apples in it. So I want you to think about that just for a minute. Now, this bowl of apples is on display in a fancy house. And it brings honor to the owner. However, there's a problem. One of the apples has a bruise. 
It's not a very big bruise. It's, a, it's a, just a small bruise, just a tiny bruise. Nevertheless, if that bruise is not cut out, the apple is going to become totally rotten. And furthermore, all of the apples then in that bowl will also go bad, won't they? And finally, that rotten mass of apples will no longer be beautiful, but corrupt, decayed, and will bring dishonor upon the owner of this bowl of apples. I want you to think about that picture because it informs us what we're talking about today, namely church discipline. Now notice, first of all, then, the context of Matthew 18. Matthew 18, if you go back to verse 1, his disciples ask the question, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's kind of a, kind of a proud, uh, proud question, isn't it? Who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This question, you see, was the occasion of much quarreling and strife among his disciples. So how does Jesus answer that? Well, he takes a little child, he puts that child in their midst, and tells his disciples that they must humble themselves, they must be humble, and they must receive the kingdom as a little child. That doesn't mean childishly, immaturely, but it means in a childlike way. And he gives warning against those who would offend one of these little ones who believe in him. He says, it would be better for a millstone to be hung around the neck of such a person. Do you know what a millstone is? This big stone. Big stone. It'd be better for a millstone to be hung about your neck and be, and be drowned in the depth of the sea than to offend one of these little ones. And then, verses 8 and following, Jesus warns them about not giving offense to God through a sinful lifestyle. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. Now, Jesus is not saying we ought to, we ought literally to cut off our hands. That's not the point. The point is, it says, if you were to cut it off, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Jesus minces no words, does he? These are the words of our Savior. And why does he say that then? Well, is it because Jesus hates these people? No, quite the opposite. It's because he loves them and therefore he warns them. As a matter of fact, he then expresses love and concern for people by means of the parable of that one lost sheep. Verse 11, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep 
than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now that's the context. That's the context for our text as we come now into verses 15 through 18. And in these verses, Jesus tells his followers what is to be done when offense is given to them. What is to be done if they are offended by a fellow believer? What does he say? He says that discipline should occur. Discipline should occur. As a matter of fact, this is in accordance with Old Testament law. It's kind of interesting. If you look at Leviticus 19, verse 17, it says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. Now, you would think, what would follow? Oh, you should just, you should just be so in, um, encouraging and, and always say positive things. That's not what the verse says. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. Isn't that interesting? Love. Love motivates, you see, this discipline. And so Jesus now, out of love, is giving us the instructions with regard to church discipline. So again, as we look at this verse, at these verses, we see that Jesus instructs his disciples regarding the purpose, procedure, and power of church discipline. And today we look at the purpose. What is it all about? What is the purpose of church discipline? And there are three basic purposes for church discipline. One, restoration and reconciliation. Restoration and reconciliation. Two, the purity of the church. And three, the honor of Christ. So first of all, then, restoration and reconciliation. Now, one of the things that we need to realize, that we need to uh, talk about here, is that humility is foundational. You know where Paul writes, let each esteem the other better than himself. Uh, be, he says, you know, be careful. <laughs> Don't be prideful in terms of rebuking someone. Yes, you do rebuke someone when it's appropriate, don't be prideful about that, though. Let each esteem, esteem other better than himself. So humility, humility is foundational, is it not, in terms of, of bringing this person who is in error, this person who is going astray, this one sheep that is going astray, humility is foundational. Also, we find the removal of obstacles. We are to remove any obstacles, such as causing one of these little ones to stumble, as Jesus said. That's literally what is being what he's referring to there in terms of putting up obstacles. Well, don't put up obstacles. Make sure that when you exercise discipline that you're, you're clearing the deck, so to speak. Make sure that you're doing this in a proper way, removing all obstacles. Also, going along with humility, there must be a loving concern. Again, look back at verse 10. Take heed, Jesus says, that you do not despise one of these little ones. 
For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. It's his love. It's his concern. Verse 14. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And so there, is, there must be a loving concern that reflects the attitude of Jesus and of the Father in heaven. Furthermore, it is not, let me be clear here, it is not in terms of church discipline to win the argument or to show how much you know or how superior you are. Again, it is humility. It's not a matter of we have our act together and you don't. All of us, in one measure or another, all of us do not have do not have our act together. All of us sin and come short of the glory of God. And so it's not that. It's not pride. It's not arrogance. It's not some sense of superiority. But it is loving concern rooted in humility. So what is what is the point then? My friends, it is in order, it is in order to win your brother. It's in order to win your brother. In uh, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30, we read, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. Uh, we read today from First uh, Corinthians, uh, from First uh, Corinthians uh, chapter five. So, if you look at First Corinthians uh, chapter five and verse five, what do we read? What does What does uh, uh, Paul say, starting in verse four? In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my Spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. I don't think that means literally the flesh. I think it means the fleshly, the carnal, the lustful activities, the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. It's for restoration and reconciliation. Uh, 2 Corinthians 2, uh, verse 5. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me. But all of you, to some extent, not to be too severe. Verse 6, this punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. He's, Paul is referring back to what we just read in 1 Corinthians 5, which was this horrible sin. This absolutely, do you remember? This absolutely horrible sexual wickedness that's not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. Horrible sexual sin. The Corinthians took heed to Paul saying, yes, though they exercise discipline. When you get to 2 Corinthians, Paul is saying, but now you don't want to destroy the person. That's not the point. You want to affirm the person. You want to bring the person back. It is for the purpose of reconciliation. You're, it's in order that that one lost sheep 
can be brought back into the fold. You ought rather to forgive and comfort him. Someone who had this horrible sexual sin, yes, yes, you need to forgive and comfort him when he repents, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. We see also in Titus uh, chapter 1. In Titus uh, chapter 1. Verses 12 and 13. Remember Titus uh, ministered on the island of Crete. And so Paul writes, One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul doesn't say, oh, what a racist comment. What does he say? This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Not to destroy them. Why? That they may be sound in the faith. Not giving heed to Jewish fables, Hebrew Israelism, and commandments of men who turn from the truth. And also James uh, chapter 5 and verse 20. James chapter 5 and verse 20. Very end of the prophecy of James, James 5 and verse 20, where James writes, starting in verse 19, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So, The first thing, then, that we look at today in terms of the purpose of church discipline is restoration and reconciliation. You see, church discipline is like cutting out that bruised part of an apple. If you don't do it, the apple is going to go bad. And therefore, it is for the good of that one apple itself that you take a knife and cut out that rotting part. Restoration, reconciliation. You've won your brother, as as Jesus says here. But secondly, the purity of the church. The purity of the church is another purpose for church discipline. Every organization must have an effective method of discipline. Discipline is necessary for any organization. If you, you, you have to have rules. You have to play by them, if you will. And you have to be able to punish violations of those rules. Now, just think if, um, if uh, the Florida Gators were playing a football game and all of a sudden uh, their opponents the Georgia Bulldogs or whomever, decided to make up their own rules, well, you'd have a mess on the field, wouldn't you? You'd have a mess. Even in football games, you need rules. And when the rules are violated, there there have to be consequences to those violations. Otherwise, you'd have chaos. You'd have chaos in society if you don't have rules. You'd have chaos in the classroom if you don't have rules. Of course, we're seeing that a lot in our classrooms today, aren't we? But the point is, every organization must have an effective method of evangelism. 
and that includes the church, or uh, of discipline, that includes the church. Furthermore, the church must be able to protect itself. The church must be able to protect itself. Uh, I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago Titus uh, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Just prior to that, Paul writes, verses 10 and 11, for there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Heretics must be stopped. Their mouths must be shut, as it were. They, in other words, not literally, but you get the point here. They must be placed outside of the church, not being able to be in a position to influence others. Furthermore, immoral people must not be allowed to influence the rest. We saw that, of course, again in 1 Corinthians 5 today. In 1 Corinthians 5, Verses uh, 6 through 8, Paul says, Your glory is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You all know, children, what happens when you take a little bit of yeast, a little bit of leaven, and put it in, in the bread? It's going to affect the whole bread. The whole loaf is in it. Therefore, Paul says, purge out, cut out the, whole, the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. There, it's the picture. In, in the Old Testament, leaven was a picture of sin. That's why when you had the Passover, you had unleavened bread because it was a picture of the absence of sin. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And you know, there's an, another interesting example of this. I was just reading one of the most interesting books in the event, the book. And do you remember in S1, do you remember Esther chapter 1? This is, of course, how Esther uh, got to uh, be the, uh, the wife of the king. Why is it? Because Vashti, the queen, refused to do the bidding of of her husband. And so you read in Esther 1, 15 through 18, what shall we do to Queen Vashti? According to law, because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus, brought to her by the eunuchs. And Mumekhan answered before the king and the princess, King Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of a King Ahasuerus. For the Queen's behavior will become known to all women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus there will be excessive contempt and wrath. In other words, people who are erring, people who are going astray, must not be allowed to influence the rest. And also, in conjunction with this, we also know that the saints must be taught. 
the saints must be instructed positively. 1 Timothy 5, verse 20. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. And this is why, in many cases, church discipline is carried out in public and is imposed in public. For those who have taken public vows need to be called to account. And those who are watching in the church and in the community need to understand the seriousness of what is going on here. Or to use the picture of the bowl of apples, if you don't cut out that rotten part of the apple, or if necessary, get rid of the bad apple itself, then all of those apples will go rotten. All of the apples will be affected. And so, what is the purpose of church discipline? First of all, restoration and reconciliation. So I'm focused on the individual who is sinning, Secondly, though, the purity of the church, the community. And thirdly, the honor of Christ. The honor of Christ. My friends, Jesus is the head of the church, and he is identified with his people, his bride. And if her garments, as the bride, as the bride if her garments become soiled, dirty, this gives opportunity this gives opportunity for the enemies to blaspheme. 1 Timothy 6 verse 1 let as many as as many bond servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed may not be spoken against. Remember David's prayer of confession found in Psalm 51 when he was when uh, he was called to account for his murder of Uriah the Hittite and his adultery with Bathsheba Uriah's wife remember that why was this so important it wasn't just important in terms of David and it wasn't just important in in terms of Israel but he had caused the name of God to be blasphemed by his enemies, by God's enemies. That's what Nathan the prophet said when he, came, when he confronted David with his sin. You've caused the enemies to blaspheme. That's what a Christian looks like. That's what an Israelite looks like. That's what one of the people of God looks like, really? Ha ha. It brings dishonor upon our head. And so not only, of course, is he, is Jesus dishonored, since he's the head of the church, but please note in this regard, in maintaining his honor, that the Lord Jesus Christ will execute his own judgments. And he does so directly, but he also does so through the church. And so again, to think of the beautiful bowl of apples, 
If the apples are all rotten, then the owner of the bowl and of that wonderful house will be dishonored. Can you imagine such a person showing you around his house and then you see a bunch of rotten apples in the dining room? No matter how beautiful the bowl, you will not be seeing the beauty of the bowl. All you'll be seeing and smelling is that rotten mass of apples. And so church discipline must be exercised or else the owner who is Christ will be dishonored. Now two points of of observation and then two points of application. So first of all, by way of observation, please note that discipline is necessary for the existence of the church. You don't have a true church without discipline. It's one of the distinguishing characteristics of the church. And one of the reasons why we are in such a mess in our society today is because the church has refused to be the church. Because the church has refused to carry out biblical discipline for people who are living lives that are far apart from what they ought to be. You know, just over a century ago, the Titanic met its doom in the icy waters of the North Atlantic. That luxury liner was a glamorous vessel. If you were on board, it was beautiful. It was gorgeous. The, you know, the dining room, the stairs, all of those things. But it became a shipwreck. And similarly, there are many apostate denominations within Christendom which may have begun gloriously, but which through the proclamation of false doctrine and or allowing and coddling greatly immoral behavior such as sexual deviancy, even homosexuality and so-called same-sex marriage, those denominations have become shipwrecked, just like the Titanic. Discipline is necessary for the existence of the church. And secondly, by way of observation, the church that does not carry out discipline experiences great loss. Loss of purity. Loss of power. Loss of progress. Loss of purpose. And now two points of application. The first is this. Never forget that love must be the motivation for the exercise of discipline. Love must be the motivation for the exercise of discipline. You all know what an orthopedic surgeon is. Someone who deals with broken bones, bones that are out of place, whatever. And sometimes it's painful to go and see an orthopedic surgeon. Sometimes that orthopedic surgeon has to re-break a bone. Now, do you think he does that because he's into uh, inflicting pain upon folks? No, no. Why does he do that? Because he's concerned. Because he's concerned. Because he wants the bones to be straight. That's why. But in order to get them straight, sometimes it's a painful process. But even that painful process that, that painful process can be necessary and the motivation for breaking those bones, for setting those bones, is love and compassion. My friends, there are times when the church in the past has not remembered that love 
must be the motivation for the exercise of discipline. Not harshness, not pride, not arrogance, not superiority. A love that is humble. Dare I say a love that is willing, as we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, that is willing to welcome back the person who is repentant. And secondly, by way of application, never forget that it is the ascended Lord who has established discipline and who uses discipline. The ascended Lord, the ascended Christ, uses discipline not out of hatred, but out of love. The same Christ who seeks that one lost sheep is the one who exercises discipline. My friends, may we indeed worship this great Savior who cares enough about us to wield the rod of discipline. The shepherd to wield the rod of discipline in order to correct cleanse and protect us. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And now our Father, we pray that thy Holy Spirit would take this message and would apply it to each heart. May we, O God, be looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who suffered all things for our sake and who, without fail, shepherds his elect into the everlasting life. And so, Father, we pray that we might love him and, yes, Lord, even love his chastening rod of discipline in the life of each one of us be pleased, O Lord, to hear this our prayer. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In closing, please.